there, listeners, and welcome to the Better Than Fine podcast. Uh, as you can see, I am not I am not Darlene, uh, although I probably look very similar because we share common genes. Uh, Dar, would you like to explain uh, what is going on today? <laughs> yeah, it is very strange to hear someone else say that line. And and you stole my line, which was going to be, why don't I tell the listeners why someone who looks like oh. the male version of me is talking? So, why don't you tell the listeners? <laughs> Uh, well, hello there, listeners. This fine gentleman, uh, if you're watching on YouTube that looks just like me, is my big brother, Dan. Uh, so Dan Marshall is Hi. our takeover host. Uh, if, you, if you're a newer fan of the show, you don't know that every year for my birthday, we invite a guest host to take over the show. Uh, they're in charge, and I don't know what the interview questions are coming. Um, in the past, it's always been someone else in the fitness and the wellness space. Uh, Dan, what's your relationship to the fitness and wellness space? Um, you have told me to participate in more fitness and wellness things, and I make sad attempts to listen. So, okay. uh, well, I played a lot of basketball. I'm an a I was an athlete. <laughs> you you were at one time. Not much of an athlete anymore. More of a curator of memes now. But fair point. Yeah. Um, and not only a curator of memes. So, so let me introduce you to our audience. Um, my brother, Dan goes on the internet as one peg. Uh, he's a professional Twitch streamer, a YouTube content creator. Um, I'm actually very proud of how successful he's been at all of those things. Um, and you're also, I like to think of you as my first frenemy. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Dan and I are close, but we're also all of the things that your best frenemy would be. Uh, so I even like the contrast of our visuals for anybody who's not on YouTube. I've got this like bright white lit space and Dan is in this like cozy, dark pink dungeon cave where he does yeah. his streams from. Yeah, it's uh, very so chill think, and cozy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So at this point, I'm turning over my baby to you. Uh, please don't break it and please don't get me fired. And let's get to it. Let's get to <laughs> no, it, big brother. Let's go. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna ask some questions, uh, submitted by the audience and a couple of them in here are peppered in by me. So that should be fun. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, cause, cause I know things about you that other people don't cause yeah. Uh, all right. Anyway, the first one is coming from Rick. Uh, they say the biggest issue I seem to have is taking uh, taking concepts and turning them into application. I know you have a degree in applied positive psychology. How do we take concepts learned in the wellness coaching world and apply them with actual clients? Concepts like overcoming obstacles, keeping it light with clients always seem to castigate self and helping someone deal with the ambivalence of wanting to make decisions that are beneficial rather than in the moment uh, desirable decisions. Ambivalence being the SAT word of the day. I like that. Ooh. It's very good. Ooh, ambivalence, good. Ambivalence. Can you define ambivalence for us and use it in a sentence, Dan? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you did just use it in a sentence, though. Yeah, I, um, I mean, yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I think that there's like four questions in there, so I'll do my best. To it was, it was loaded. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we got it. We got a lot in there. Um, the first thing I think I pulled out is just taking any kind of scientific evidence base and turning it into application. Um, which that delicious essence of that is why I didn't go into like getting a PhD or going into some kind of research, because I really do think of myself as an applied practitioner. Um, and for me, the most important thing is what's my current scientific evidence based of how something works and how does it actually apply to the life of the person or people, the group in front of me? Um, because I think very often we'll look at really weak 
scientific evidence and try to make these broad statements that all they really ever do is confuse somebody. Uh, so regardless of the subject matter we're talking about, you know, fitness, coaching, wellness, training, they're all applied practices of taking a body of evidence and trying to find the essence that actually applies to the client in front of you. Um, but I think the question was about how do I do that? And one of the biggest things when we're talking about coaching to me, especially in the fitness space, is that coaching is not training. So personal training, I'm making a prescription. I'm going to tell somebody what to do. Whereas coaching, I'm going to create a space where they can be given the tools to figure out what they should do in their life. And I think for me, that's one of the ways I get really frustrated that people use the word coaching to kind of mean everything instead of what it actually is to mean, which is that application. Um, can you read me back what the bit was about ambivalence? <laughs> um, helping someone deal with the ambivalence of wanting to make decisions that are beneficial rather than in the moment desirable decisions. Kind of like, I guess it sounds more like uh, like good decisions versus impulse choices. Mm. Well, let's... Let's, I'm going to define ambivalence for us, Dan. Um, so ambivalence is that thing that you do when you're like, oh, I really want this change in my life. I'm really going to do this thing. I'm going to change the habit. I'm going to go to bed early. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go to the gym, like whatever it was. And then when the moment actually comes, you don't want it anymore. So you don't ever do it. But then you beat yourself up later and then you repeat the cycle. And so you're kind of like, am I in or am I out? Am I in or out? Do I actually want the things I say I want? Um, and the whole toolkit around working through ambivalence is called motivational interviewing. And the, the thing that I really see around motivational interviewing is clients and coaches and trainers, like they'll expect, like, I'm going to do the whammy on you. I'm going to use motivational interviewing and it'll just like trick you into action. Uh, when that's not actually the point of motivational interviewing, that's not actually the point of resolving ambivalence. The point is I'm going to help this person examine their own behavior in their own life and decide if they really want it or not. And whenever I go into an ambivalence conversation with a client, I don't go in trying to convince them to act. I go in trying to hold the space for them to look at whether or not they want the thing that they say they want, or do they just wish they wanted it, which isn't the same thing. And if they don't actually want it, how can we let it go and let them move forward in a positive way? Um, and so to me, you're not trying to trick anybody into fixing the ambivalence. You're just trying to like, help them make better decisions for themselves day to day. Right. Like that core motivation stuff that you've talked about so much in the past. Oh, you've been listening to the show. Mm. <laughs> Almost like I support my siblings. <gasps> so weird. Okay. Oh, you are, you are so Question weird. Anyway. Down, man, we got this thing. We are rolling. <laughs> Rich asks with the weight loss ads about to hit stride in January, how do you see this sector of the wellness industry affecting people's, especially women's well-being and sense of self? And what perspective should we have instead? Yeah, I think any focus on weight in wellness is misguided, which I know is a really controversial opinion. Like this is a weight neutral show for a reason. I don't advocate um, for just blanket weight loss statements because they aren't helpful and they aren't scientifically accurate. Um, so if weight is the actual problem. And that's a big if, and anybody who wants to hear the scientific evidence about why <laughs> I, I take the stance that I do, um, I know, I, I, I'm assuming that the rich here is Rich Fami, um, and Rich Fami was a guest on this show three times this year, and we did a whole series of episodes about 
weight neutrality and the myth of that weight is always bad and uh, the BMI and kind of all of that evidence. Um, but to me, if, if weight is actually the problem, um, if we're focusing on weight loss, focusing on weight loss itself, the way we've been taught to, right? Calorically restrict, exercise a ton, um, damage your metabolism in the process. The, the way we're taught to think about it isn't actually effective. We know that because 90, I think it's 96% of studied weight loss methodologies fail uh, after a year. Um, meaning that, yeah, you'll initially lose weight, but a year out, you'll either be back to your initial weight or you'll have gained weight. Um, so, and weight cycling like that is actually really unhealthful. It's linked to a bunch of long-term um, lifestyle disease and, and, and health issues. Um, but what we could do instead is focus on eating healthful foods that actually nurture the body, uh, sleeping, learning to regulate the nervous system, moving in ways that feel good, building a healthful metabolism. And if you do all of those things, weight will normalize to a healthful state. Um, so to me, the focus on weight loss from a wellness perspective is misguided and it's leaning into um, social forces that are just about money. So that's really the perspective I've taken. Um, the other thing I would say, you know, I think at the end he asks, like, what what perspective would I have instead? And the perspective that I try to instill in my clients is the idea that, like, this is a long-term project. Like, having a life, having a body is a long-term project. It's the longest-term project you're ever going to have. And this is the body that I've been given to explore the world, to... Um, to embody, right? Like this is the vehicle my consciousness rides around in and everything I'm ever going to do is going to happen through this body. So I want to have the most informative, fun, interesting, exciting life that I possibly could have. And I want to treat my body like it's going to last me a lifetime. Uh, and how long can I make that lifetime and how interesting and fun can I make that lifetime? And to me that that is so much more fruitful than what does my scale say? Because that says it's one of the least interesting things about a person to me. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. And so many fitness influencers make their living by doing the exact opposite of what it is that you're talking about. Um, yeah. Which, eh, I guess it is what it is, right? Misinformation well, is everywhere. Right, but it. I mean, here's the thing: like you and I both have platforms, right? Like, right. We can say it is what it is, or we can invest time and energy in changing it. Um, that was part of why I ever agreed to bring my show over to the NASM network is to me, it was a, a opportunity to, yeah, I had to change some things about the format. I had to, to compromise a little bit on what I wanted to be saying and doing. And that's not, I'm not complaining. I'm, I was happy to do it because it meant that I could share these ideas in a much larger platform. Right. Um, to be on a uh, network provided by one of the biggest names in, in fitness and certification and putting out ideas about weight neutrality to me is a massive win because five years ago, that wasn't a conversation that was happening at this level. Right. Um, and there are a lot of fitness influencers that aren't just out there perpetuating these ideas. They're preying on people's insecurities. They're worsening their mental health. Yeah. Um, they're manipulating people in their understanding of how bodies work. And sometimes hurting people. And that makes me very upset. So what you're saying is in order to combat that, they should probably listen to a podcast like this one. Which like this is one, the like better than fine podcast. 
Yeah, you're listening to the better. What you're listening to right now, (laughs) and that was Dan's (laughs) reset. Um, You're listening to the 2023 uh, BTF birthday takeover. I'm Darlene Marshall, and this is my brother Dan One Peg Marshall, and he is—he's supposed to be in charge. So I'm going to stop talking. Ham is what I am. (laughs) He is ham. Yeah, I am. Uh, Okay, Jerry asks, "Why do you think our culture is so obsessed with weight?" I guess that's a good segue. Yeah, yeah. And by extension, uh, food and body and yeah all of it um and this one this one came through me so i i did go off and research this one a little bit um and earlier today i was talking to one of my clients about this question and gave her my honest answer and she's like why don't you say that on the show i was like "Ah, i don't know might be too she's like no you need to say it on the show so i'm gonna be a brave little toaster and say my honest answer on the show uh depending on how far back we go in history and we could go pretty far back um it's a status symbol to have uh, an idle woman whose only job it is to look pretty and and make beauty in the world and make babies. Um, it was a status symbol. It was a symbol of privilege and of power to have people in your family be idle. And depending on what period of time we're talking about is whether or not there's food scarcity, right? Whether or not there's an abundance of calories. And so sometimes the symbol of that was being rounder and thinner or rounder and heavier. And sometimes it was being thinner and more delicate, depending on where we're looking at in the world. Who you were supposed to be, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And now we have come to associate thinness with status. We associate that with self-control, with discipline, with resources, um, thin people make more money. Right. Thin and, and so, tall. yeah, well, <laughs> look at us at six, one and six, four, <laughs> look at um, us. definitely not thin though. Um, and not for nothing. Like, I don't mean to blow you up either, but you've also been in a large body at times. I've been in a larger body than I am. At I was times. in a very like, large body at one point in time. Right. I have stretch so marks you know. on my insides of my legs. I can prove that I gained a lot yeah. of weight real fast. It was not fun. Well, you were, all, yeah. and it wasn't, it wasn't because you were lazy. It's because you were depressed. You were very unhappy yeah. at that point. Yeah, I wear life. my depression in my stomach. It's awesome. So does everyone in our family. <laughs> yeah. But then we um, fixed it. And well, I, I didn't gain the weight back, which has it. been nice. I'm still plus size. Yeah. Right? I My body fat percentage is technically <clears throat> obese, but I also yeah. don't care. I'm incredibly healthy in my blood markers. It literally doesn't matter. Yeah. But the point is that if I lost 15 pounds, 25 pounds... It would be easier for me to get clients because I'd oh, be thinner. Oh, for sure. For yeah. sure. So thin people make more money. They're seen as more desirable. And as long as we live in a system where we discriminate against people based off of the shape of their body, whatever the current body ideal is, is what people will pay money and be socially pressured into trying to be like. And so to me, when whether we're talking about fitness, we're talking about wellness, we're talking about diet culture, the more that we as practitioners divest from that model and the more that we as people refuse to pay for nonsense, the less we're perpetuating those ideas. And that to me is um, the, the best that any of us can be doing is looking into ourselves and being like, yeah, what, what actually works for me? Um, and then I, you know, I'll refer back to the individual practices that I said before. But to me, that's, that's unquestionably where it all comes from and what we do about it. We push back against it and we don't give them our money. Yeah. Yeah. Or find people that are worth giving money to that actually have the right message, right? Give me your money. <laughs> yeah. 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 Give Dar your money. Um, Thanks, Dan. <laughs> the moral of the podcast today is giving Dar all of your money. 
<laughs> the fun part is, I don't know that anyone's called me Dar on the show before, but hey, everybody, uh, Welcome. my yep. my intimate name <laughs> with my family and friends yep. is Dar. Um, is. Okay, so uh, more intimate knowledge about you. This one's from me. Uh, you okay. have a lot of Wonder Woman memorabilia. I do. But, but there's an interesting twist to the Wonder Woman memorabilia that you own, meaning that you didn't purchase any of it. Oh, um, I the only thing that I purchased for myself has been my tiara. I have a Wonder Woman tiara that I bought at Gen Con uh, eight years ago I, on a whim. I was just like, oh, I think this is really cute. It's brass. It's neat. Um, and then I took a selfie and I posted it to the internet. And apparently I hit on everyone's imagination because <laughs> since then, uh, yes, I now own dozens and dozens of figurines and I have the cuffs that go with the tiara now. I have um custom art that people yeah, have Gal had Gadot commissioned. And speed dial, you know? I have Gal Gadot. Actually, so fun. I don't know I don't know if you know this story. Um so that was a joke. My... If she tells me she actually has Gal Gadot on speed dial. No, so. that would be so interesting. Um no, so one of my clients who will remain nameless um has some connections in some things and stuff. And the UN once declared Wonder Woman as an honorary ambassador for the um, equality of women and girls, which is a common thing for the UN to do. They'll they'll take a cartoon figure, a mm -hmm. fictional figure, and name them honorary ambassador. So there was going to be a, a ceremony at the UN. Um, oh, I can't. Linda Carter was going to be there. Gal Gadot was there. Um, you know, the creators, some of the artists that have worked on Wonder Woman over the years were there. Uh, and so this client tried to get me in. But I had a plane ticket to go visit uh, my best friend from college. <laughs> and so she's like, but can't you cancel? This is like Wonder Woman at the UN. You have to be there. But I didn't want to bail on my plane ticket. So I didn't mm. get to meet Gal Gadot that day. Mm. I probably would have my plans. I know, I know. I know you would have. You're oh, blown off my yeah. birthday party to go, I don't know, play in Texas. Um, yeah, I'm going to go shoot guns <laughs> with a bunch of rednecks. Um, Instead of coming to my party anyway, friend I, of me, yeah, moving yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it'll be fun, though. Um, it will be fun. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, let's see. Uh, I have been feeling very overwhelmed and indecisive because I'm struggling with hopelessness. Uh, do you have any advice? That one's that's a that's that's a big question. Yeah, way to throw me, way to lob me one. I mean, you did warm me up with some ones you know I can answer. Yeah, I gave you some softballs. Yeah, I appreciate that. Way sure. to go, big brother. <laughs> yeah. Um, didn't hit you with the haymaker up front. So I think if we're gonna talk about hopelessness, we have to start with talking about helplessness. And um, for me, talking about helplessness, I always start talking about Martin Seligman. So Martin Seligman, Graham Poobah, founder of Positive Psychology. Um, everybody thinks of positive psychology as his big contribution to the world, but I actually think his more important discovery is the concept of learned helplessness, which he discovered when he was a grad student, like a bazillion years ago, he's 81 now. So, you know, do the math. Anyway, so back in the, I'm going to say 70s, but I don't have the date in front of me. Um, Seligman was working in the lab and he noticed that the dogs that they were doing experiments on, because at that was a time when we were still doing a lot of animal experience experiments, um, eventually dogs would be in these situations where they were being shocked. And I know it's really unpleasant to talk about, um, but you shock an animal long enough and it will eventually lay down and give up and stop trying to escape what's called a shock box. 
And um, Seligman noticed this. It didn't happen with every single dog forever, but most of the dogs would eventually give up. It would be different numbers of shocks for different dogs. Um, and that they would eventually give up. He, he titled it helplessness, learned helplessness. That eventually, if you're put in an unresolvable situation long enough, not only dogs, but mammals will give up. And what they found in larger and larger studies, and it doesn't have to be just physical discomfort. It can be psychological, it can be emotional, it can be problem solving and puzzles. Like this happens in humans in all different kinds of conditions. That left to flounder long enough, you will eventually give up and trying. And then what Seligman discovered was that um, in that condition, once you've experienced helplessness, even if it becomes solvable, you won't try to solve it because you've just, you're broken, you've given up or the animal or whatever. And that's learned helplessness that eventually once you have really just given it up and you feel helpless, you won't even try to solve it, even if the solution is right in front of you. But this is not the final answer. Hopelessness uh, to me is more desperate than helplessness because what Seligman and, and colleagues that have come after him have found was that if you show that animal the solution and you have to show them over and over with consistency and patience time after time that it is solvable, they will eventually stand back up and try again. Obviously as humans, ideas can be input into us without you know, direct experiential learning. We can hear something, we just have to believe it. And so with humans, the solution is hope. It's looking at whatever situation you find yourself in and finding what the hope is now. And so this all leads to two sets of skills um, that I, I love to talk about. I love to teach. I wish I got the chance to teach more. The first is um, realistic optimism. So I'm going to be 100% honest with myself about the situation I find myself in. And then do, you know, the, the second skill, the optimistic skill is called regoling. Even if I have to let go of a bunch of the things I think I wanted, what can I hope for now? And the research on regoling is done with parents of terminally ill children. So you want to talk about like the ultimate hopelessness. You know your child will not grow up into adulthood. Um, what could you hope for now? And even in that situation, what you can hope for, I can hope to make sure my child knows that we love them. I can hope to live out our religious views through the rest of their life. I can hope for them um, to be able to come home again. Like it doesn't matter what it is. That's still hope. And so to this person who is feeling this sense of helplessness, first engaging with practices that help you gauge a, a realistic viewpoint of what's actually going on. Um, because yeah, it would be flippant and just dissociative of me to say that the world is not in a challenging place right now. And that doesn't mean the world is in a hopeless place right now. So whatever the realistic version of your reality is right now, what can you still hope for? And that hope should be anchored in your values and what gives meaning to your life, whatever that is. Uh, and that's really the best guidance I can give to anybody who's struggling right now with, with everything going on. Um, what can you hope for now? And to be really realistic and pragmatic about what's actually going on in your life, um, like be 100% honest with yourself and then look forward to what you can leverage, what you can do, because otherwise all of those other thoughts, all of that other time is unhelpful in actually moving us forward and in, in engaging with resilience. So it's kind of like the, uh, the ADHD brain kind of stuff that I have to do because I have ADHD like real bad. And you do. I, 
I do. And, <laughs> and hyper-focus is a superpower, but only when yeah. uh, it actually works for you. Um, yeah. So like, if there's a lot, like if there's a large task in front of me that I consider to be very, very tedious um, and is a, you know, a mile long laundry list worth of stuff, I have to break that thing down into like very small achievable bits and bites and just kind of go like, all right, move the coasters. And then what, you know? So I have to, I have to reframe all of those things into like very small um, bits in order to be able to accomplish them. Otherwise, if I look at like the larger picture, it just becomes overwhelming and crushes you. And then I don't do anything. So you get like this paralysis thing going on. And uh, it, to me, it sounds like when you describe that um, in regard to hopelessness, it's a lot of reframing on the things that you figure that you can be hopeful for and then work on the other stuff after that. And yeah. Is that close? Yeah, I think it is close. It reminds me, um, I don't remember if you remember, we used to have this like really silly book when we were kids that was like all of these like kind of gross stories and odd factoids. And one of them was about like the man who ate a car. Do you remember this oh, one? Oh yeah. Like a little bit at a time he would like shred up tires yeah. and like, put them on his pasta and stuff. Or like grind up the glass and sprinkle it onto his tacos. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And it's like, yeah, I'm not going to eat the whole car like bite for bite as it is. I've got to process it into a way that I can, I'm not going to eat a yeah. car, but you get the idea. Don't eat, cars. Don't eat cars. Don't eat cars. No. Don't eat cars. Don't, don't do eat it. a car. No, no. no it's Step not one. healthy. Don't eat a car. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's not good for it's your microbiome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would not be healthy. No, no, no. Uh, per, as it as it pertains anyway to the Better Than Fine podcast, which is what people are listening to right now, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Um, and your guest host is Dan One Fake Marshall, and That's I'm me. in the hot seat. Yeah, I'm Darlene yeah. Marshall. Go resets. Go Marshalls. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, what is uh, one thing or the one thing? I guess you get to pick. Uh, you wish you knew at the beginning of your wellness journey, because you have had quite the wellness journey yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, to the chagrin of many uh, a medical professional that said, you can't do this. And then you just kind of did. So, or then also the chagrin of many medical professionals toward the later stages of this process that have tried to tell me things that are incorrect about my. Oh, yeah, that's always fun, too. Don't you just um, love when people get factual information wrong? That's my favorite. I, I, it's like they don't know, even bother to read themselves. It's my, it's great. To, to me, it's that whenever I have that experience, I'm going to rabbit hole for just a second. Whenever I have the experience of a practitioner who tr tries to give me inaccurate information about my own condition, um, I try to remember to have compassion for the fragile ego that feels that defensive. <laughs> Um, mm. that when I say, well, I think you're incorrect. And then they, they start to posture. Um, but for anybody who wants more information about what I'm talking about last year's takeover episode, Rich Fami was the guest host and he asked questions about my story, how I became a trainer, how I became a coach, the whole nine. And I explained, um, I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. It's a hypermobility disorder. It's genetic and it affects the connective tissue that supports my joints. And so, essentially I am a mutant, but I choose to think of it as my superpower. So even though I've got a wonder woman thing, I'm actually an X-Man. Um, and you know, in terms of the things that I wish that I had known at the beginning. And so I was diagnosed at 23 at the point I couldn't walk barefoot at all or carry anything in my left arm. Um, there was a lot of trial and error then. Um, but at the time I thought, well, I just have to get better and then, and then I'm fine. Right funny better than the show title mm. in there somewhere be um than mine. Yeah, yeah no that wasn't intentional that was completely unintentional <laughs> i just so heard, I heard it after it came out of my mouth mm. Woo, unintentionally funny 
Um, but much like people think about, you know, to go back to the weight loss thing, people think like, oh, I'm just gonna like lose the weight over the next six months. And then that's who I'll be from then on, or I'm gonna run that 5k and then I can stop running or whatever. And I, I alluded to this idea before I'm really leaning into how do we prime people to have the realization that all of this stuff is a lifelong process. This idea that when we're talking about fitness, we're talking about wellness, we're talking about self-care, like whatever label we want to slap on lifestyle practice, it is a lifelong project to be a human and to be a good person that actually takes care of themselves and takes care of other people. And so it's not this like short term quick fix. I'm just going to go on a crash diet or like join a gym for six months. Like you're making these changes to your cognition, to your physicality, to your lifestyle, to the structure of your being so that you can live them for the rest of your life. And I wonder if I understood that at 23, which I don't know if anybody can really understand that at 23, Probably but not. 17 years ago when this all was happening to me, um, and I think most people have that kind of like smack up the forehead and wake up moment later in life. So in some ways, I'm, yeah, comeuppance. Comeuppance. Like, that's a good one. It's, it's I, usually like mid to late 20s, I think, as people start like getting a little introspective, like, do I really want to be this person? Yeah. Oh, definitely that. I'm talking about like the full on like come around of like my body's falling apart. And if I don't do yeah. something right now, I'm going to end up completely immobilized. Like I was told yeah. at 23, prepare yourself for a sedentary lifestyle. You won't even be able to pick your kids up. Um, and now I deadlift over my body weight. So haha, jokes on them. Um, Get wrecked. But it's Medical a lifelong process. Like, that's what I wish I understood. I wish I had a longer viewpoint to the horizon of the arc of my life. And I think I would have made more sustainable choices from the jump. But I also don't know that I could have understood it sooner. Nice. Okay. Thanks. I'm glad the, you approve. <laughs> on to the next question. Well, like oh, we've had we've had multiple conversations in the past about like your your journey through uh all of the hardships that you have um, dealt with emotionally and physically, uh, through many years of, of persevering. And I think if there was one word that I would choose for you, it would be perseverance. That would be like my, my number one descriptor other than being like, just cool. <laughs> cause like, cause like you've done really cool stuff. And like, 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 I think people think that I've done cool stuff, but I look at like the stuff that you've done like, uh, you know, with traveling and, and, and educating yourself and like the stuff that you've gone through and just kind of like beating the odds. Like, it's just, it's cool. It's just cool. Like you're cool. Um, no, listen. no, we're not freezing over that. Cause I want to explain for anybody who's just listening on the audio and doesn't see my face right now. Uh, I feel that I owe the listeners a little something here. My brother is so cool. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm going to gush for a second. My brother, like in high school, when we were in our 20s, he was always way cooler than me. And so the idea that he would be on my show, this is the birthday present I have given to myself, that my brother, <laughs> like I am sending the message back to my 15-year-old self. I'm going to tell a quick story. So when I was a teenager, oh, no. when I was a teenager um, in our like mid-late teens, my brothers had this like cool group of friends and they'd go out every weekend and they'd go bowling and they'd go like shooting pool and they go to the movies and they'd be like driving the cars too fast. 
And my mom would literally pay them to take me with them because I would be home reading a book and she would want to go out on a date. So she would give them a little pocket money for themselves each then she'd give me, and then she'd hand Dan 20 bucks and be like, you can only have the money if you take your sister. <laughs> so I, 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 took, I took you. You took did you. take me. You got yeah. the money and you ran. Um, so yeah. anyway, 15 year old self, I'm sending you a little message from the future. Dan thinks you're cool now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've done like really cool stuff, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. saying so. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, it's it's fine. It's fine. Um, it's, we're, we're it just not, fine? we're going to keep it to ourselves. We're not going to tell anyone. There's not going to be a ton of people that watch this, even though there probably will be. Um, but we're not going to, we're just not going to say anything to anybody about it. It's fine. It'll be just, you know, it's a secret. Um, do you plan to set any New Year's resolutions? And no. if so, share one. I am not a New no. Year's resolution person. I've never been one. And I don't think you are either. No, no, no. It goes against everything I know about how human beings make sustainable positive. Yeah, that no one, human beings. Hardly anyone keeps them. <laughs> Not human beings, but human beings. Yeah, New Year's um, resolutions are only good for like driving gym memberships at the YMCA. Like, <laughs> that's what yeah. that's what people end up doing. And like, yeah, they get they get they get the contract at at uh, Planet Fitness, and then Planet Fitness makes their money for the the, the quarterly report. Yep, that's pretty much what happens. Sip off that annual subscription uh, uh, membership month mm -hmm. by month. Um, what I'll do instead um, is set a very few, very few, very specific self-concordant goals um, so that I'm more focused. And one of the mistakes I made in the past was I'd set like a dozen goals and then I'd lose track of them all. I'd feel frustrated that I was failing. I wouldn't have enough time mm -hmm. to execute. Um, and that's not at all what I do now. Now it's, you know, I'll probably set maybe four goals for the year. And then when I blow them out of the water by like April, I'll turn around and set a few more. Um, and they're all within a, a track of four very specific multi-decade goals um, that I've been chipping away at for years, many years uh, since I got divorced. Um, and so that's that's what I'll do. I'll set the, the goals of the next stage of those life art goals. Speaking of goals, do you, are you the type of person that sets uh, a realistic, sh like short achievable goal that you know that you can hit? Or do you go for like the lofty one that seems out of reach, but then if you get 80% of the way there, you know what I mean? Cause I, all right. So to compare, um, <laughs> I'll do, I'll do, uh, I, I do charity stuff like pretty often. Um, usually I do like two, uh, larger, uh, fundraising events for St. Jude every year. Yeah. My um, brother's I, really cool. <laughs> I take, I, I take part in a very, very large event, um, that I've been asked now to do for three years. And it's been, it's been really, really fun. Um, where we try to raise money for St. Jude. And, uh, there's very, very large content creators that, that literally raise millions of dollars. And I, I will set like, uh, 30,000, you know, something like that. Something that I haven't ever hit before. Um, knowing full well that it, maybe it comes in at like 20 or 25, but for me, like psychologically, if I set it at 20, it's like, we hit the goal. And then yeah. what? So like, if I do, if I do 30 and I get 25, it's like, okay, well I could have said 20 and then I was there or I got 5k more, which means I did more than I would have done otherwise. So, uh, it's always been interesting to me, like, cause uh, there's people that set like very short term ones that are like relatively easily achievable ones for like that dopamine hit. But like, for me, it's always like, I've, I've always tried to set like big lofty ones, stuff that's like crazy out of reach that I'll never touch. But if I got, you know, halfway there, then it's way more than I would have done otherwise. So what, what, how do you do that for yourself? Yeah, 
no, thank you. And thank you for, you know, it's funny. The other thing, there was a thing in my notes of like to talk about your charity work. So like oh, my brother, my brother's great. A little bit. Um, we are of like mind. But to answer your question, um, I think there's two different sets here, right? So my goals, my personal goals for myself, um, I try to make them in a sweet spot in between the two you're talking where I think I can reach it, but I'm going to really have to work for it. And research shows that that is what like primes the dopamine pump, um, keeps you motivated if it's aligned with your values. Uh, and so you want something that you have to reach for because it's actually stretching you and growing you, building your self-efficacy. Um, something like the charity stuff you do, setting a higher goal, just increase the likelihood people are going to give more money. So that, that to me, like you're, you're spot on in terms of the yeah, stretch that there. Sense. That makes but sense. The other thing I want to drive home is when we're talking about actual behavior change, which isn't the same as the goal, right? So if my goal was, um, I want to get really, really strong again, I got hurt at the beginning of the summer, I had to take a bunch of time off to do a bunch of corrective exercises, I have EDS, blah, 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 blah. Next six months, I want to get strong AF. And so um, I'm going to set a goal for myself of lifting four days a week for the next six months. That will actually be really difficult in my schedule. Um, but I think it's doable, but the actual practice of doing it is going to be looking at like, okay, what am I 100% certain I can actually do? I'm not going to set up like three hour workouts that I have to drive 40 minutes to get to a real gym. I'm going to start at, you know, 45 minute workouts. Cause I need to rework it back into my lifestyle. So I'm going to eat a pint of ice cream and a bag of gummy bears and call it a day. <laughs> Diabetes runs in our family, Dan. <laughs> Diabetes I've, runs in our family. In my, in my defense, I haven't had ice cream and I don't even, I don't even know. Yeah, he doesn't mean ice it. He's delicious. being a smart aleck. He's being yeah. a smart aleck. Yeah. He doesn't actually mean it. Um, but not that that, hey, not that that's bad. Listener, if you want to have ice cream, I'm not going to judge you for that. That's, right. that's very important yeah. for you to know. Um, but my point being, like, when it comes to the actual execution of behavior, you want to pick habits and behavior changes that you 100% know that you can execute on because then you're building success over time and weaving it into your lifestyle. You don't want the stretch goal to be like, okay, I'm going to, instead of shutting my screens off 15 minutes earlier, I'm going to shut it off 90 minutes earlier because circadian cycle adaptation doesn't work that way, right? You got to work with where you're at right now in terms of execution, but the goals that you're setting should be a reach that you'll have to work for to get, because that will be more motivating. Did that answer your question, Dan? <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good. Segways. We like segways on, on this podcast, which is the Better Than Fine podcast birthday takeover. And I get to be the host today. You did it. We did it. You did it. Yeah, I got the extra bit in there. All right, sweet. You did. Resets. Woo. Uh, <laughs> <all right>. <laughs> Say <laughs> your name and mine. Say your name and mine. With uh, Darlene Marshall, and I'm Dan One Peg Marshall. Um, I'm yes, under pressure. What are your thoughts on alcohol and health? Is there any way to celebrate with friends with or without alcohol? Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, um, you know, it's an or I'm question. Gonna, I mean, logically I'm going to plug. Um, so Derek Brown was on the show last year. Um, he's a mindful drinking expert. He's actually gonna come on the show again this year in January. So you'll get another dose of Derek Brown in the new year. Um, and he's been working with NASM on a mindful drinking course. Um, so which is all to say, to me, it's what's the intentioned positive choice um, in not just drinking, but any kind of mindful consumption. Um, so whether we're talking about alcohol, we're talking about THC, we're talking about sugar, we're talking about ice cream. Um, are you listening to your own physiology 
and you're making an intentional choice. And so for our household, we have certain just like axioms, certain rules of thumb. And so one of our rules of thumb is we don't drink when we're sad. We only drink in celebration or out of ritual. So like a toast at a wedding or Friday is my birthday party. Um, so we'll, we'll all both have wine and, and cocktails over the next week and it'll be fun in celebration, but we'll also stop a few hours before we're going to go to bed. Um, it's in moderation. You're actually savoring and enjoying. And if you want a deep dive on savoring, that was last week's episode. Um, so to me, it's possible uh, and you want to make it enjoyable, but you also want to be intentional and aligned with your values. Yeah. I think it yeah. just comes down to desire, right? Like if you want to do something and you're an adult and you figure you're under control, then you should be able to enjoy those things. If you don't, or, or I, I, I kind of personally always look at it. Like if I'm kicking myself in the butt afterward, then it probably wasn't a good idea. And maybe I made a bad choice. And, yeah. But you know, what if it's she... ambivalence? Like what if it's, yeah, I want well, to want it. Cause I feel like I've been socially pressured into wanting it. Right. Well, like... I'm, I'm one of those people that like, we're like the only people that tend to dwell on the past. Like, uh, like oh, yeah. us we're the only species, ones. We, we dwell on the past, <laughs> right? Like other, sure. other species, they learn from their mistakes and they try to not repeat the same behavior. And we have, I think the best of intentions, but you know, Come on, man. You have cats. You know better than that sentence. I've seen cats do very well, dumb things <laughs> over yeah. and over. I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you very no, much. No, no, you're right. You're, um, yeah, no, you're right. But I guess I I if think there are a sits. lot of people who are struggling right now and they are finding mm -hmm. coping yeah. in some less than healthy places. And you yeah. we you, you and I, uh, but we have the same gene pool. Um, we come from a family of alcoholics. Yeah. And so to say that like, ah, you're an adult, like we, uh, on both sides of our family, we have witnessed the damage done yeah. when people don't have intentionality and control. And I, in my twenties had rules. I didn't allow alcohol to stay in the house in my twenties. I don't think you know this, that my ex-husband and I had a rule that like, we just didn't keep alcohol in the house at yeah. all because I didn't trust myself to not turn into those people that I'm yeah. alluding to from our yeah. family tree. Yeah. And learning moderation has been incredibly difficult for me because you, we were raised in a binge drinking culture. ADHD it was the only moment. way our people knew how to have fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't so, help that the dopamine hit and the, uh, the, uh, the ADHD stuff that we both share in uh, comes to play yeah. in all of that and the addictive personality stuff. And, yeah, it just, it all fits hand yeah. in hand, which is why we're more predetermined, predisposed to depression and anxiety issues, and uh, we get addicted to stuff and people a lot easier, you know. Yep. And it's yep. It's uh, it's it's actually been quite the process, like learning about all that stuff. Because uh, my own little story, uh, it's not to like make it about me, because it's not. Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> be sorry. Go. <laughs> but being being like, I didn't learn about like how ADHD worked. I was diagnosed when I was 19, but I was just like, oh, I can't pay attention. And that was it for like 11, 12 years. And not until I was in my early to mid thirties that I start learning about like, oh, that's why I like act like this. Like, I didn't know what hyper focus was until I was like 36. <laughs> like, yeah. I was like, oh, Oh, so, okay. Like that makes a lot of sense now. So that's why I spent 90 hours making a cosplay costume one Halloween for my 12 year old <laughs> and never touched the drama costume. tool again. And it, and it came out badass. 
Like that's why I taught myself Python so that I could program like programmable addressable LEDs and never did that ever again because he wanted a costume and you know like now I have all the tools and I have no desire to ever do it again, you know. Yeah. But it's like it's like that kind of stuff. So I look at like you know alcohol and health and and those kinds of things as like um, uh, I drank really heavy when I was in my twenties and uh, I got to the point where I was about thirty two, thirty three, and then I just stopped. Stopped. Yeah. Yeah. Until I got married. And my sister um, took me out from a bachelor party. Oh no! Yeah. So here's a story about Dar. Uh, we went out. We went out for my bachelor party evening. It I was, didn't give you this hangover. I solved the hangover. It was it was PG, um, but everybody handed me drinks. And uh, my sister fell on the sword. Actually, she she told my soon to be wife that uh, it was her fault that I got drunk. Um, I was but in bed wasn't. sleeping. I had a friend that I have been playing video games with. And at this point now, I've been playing video games with him for over 20 years. And uh, he lives in Colorado. And he's th this guy, his name is Zach. And him and his wife were flying in from Colorado for the wedding. And I had seen this guy like face to face once before in my like mid 20s. And I hadn't seen him in for six or seven years. Um, and they flew in and I was too hungover to get out of bed to go and pick him up at the airport. My dad had to do it and had no idea what this guy looked like and like found him somehow and got him back to the house. It was crazy. By the time that my sister nursed me back to health, it was like 5 PM. My wife was beside herself mad at me. And I walk out in the backyard and there's like my buddy Zach and his wife, like just sitting in lawn chairs, talking to my family. And he had been here for like three hours <laughs> as my sister's like trying to feed me like bread and orange juice. So I can't get out of bed. So to just wrap this story with something that's the last time the that listeners. i got like really drunk i haven't i he, haven't drank in a very long time since i did not get him drunk i provided the situation where other people got him very inebriated and his true. his beloved called me very angry the next day because it was the day of the rehearsal mm -hmm. and he it was, i think it was like one or two p.m he was not out of bed nope. um and what i learned that day is unfortunately our family has no idea how to stabilize a hangover as it's downward spiraling <laughs> um and so let me just give for the listener it's electrolytes and stabilizing the blood sugar yep. and then you deal with the headache and the secondary symptoms but you really yep. got to regulate the state stabilize the blood sugar and deal with the electrolytes yep. my sister resurrected me from the dead Anyway, that's my, that's my, that's my alcohol plug. Yeah, I think amazing. we have time for one, one more and then we should probably. Wrap okay. It, for, you mean for up. the 2023, uh, better than fine birthday takeover <laughs> podcast with, with Dan one peg Marshall and Darlene Marshall. Good right. work. You nailed it on the last one. I'm Let's very go. Proud of you. We're so good at this. <laughs> me, and, me and my, me and my ruined voice. I, I blew my voice out in Las Vegas over a month ago at TwitchCon because there was a tournament going on for a game that I play uh, and I'm known for 10,000 hours and 700 YouTube videos about this one video game in particular. And they had this booth and a bunch of my friends were all participating in this tournament and me cheering them on blew my voice out. Nice. And then when I, then when I got home, I got a cold from Zoe, the plague bringer, my three-year-old. Um, and she, <laughs> she is, she's Zoe, the plague bringer. And that's, that's what I call her. And uh, she gave me a cold that gave me laryngitis and I lost my voice for like two days. And it's been two weeks since then. Um, and then she just gave me another one. I got pharyngitis now <laughs> that I'm on and steroids for. That I'm on steroids not... for. And I'm drinking hot tea and lemon and, and with honey and all this other stuff to try and like bring it back. But I just like, I have like this, 
uh, rasp going on. I got like the smelly cat voice. And yeah, I, I <laughs> what are it. they feeding you? Yeah, I, I had um, this fall. I also had uh, bronchitis and then I got better for three weeks and I got COVID. And so <sighs> I've also been people who've been regularly listening to the show. Like, what is wrong with you? Like everything. Um, but also Dan and I were both singers and we fronted a band together and Dan used to blow his voice out every ago. show. So yep. I don't blame the laryngitis. What do you got? Last question. Let's go. I sing, I sing really loud too. And I've been practicing how to scream lately. Um, well, I've been doing it like Dan uh, question. I'm yeah. I'm working on it. <laughs> ADHD <laughs> moment. All right. Okay. Um, <sighs> um, okay. So this one, it literally says, uh, save it for the end. Uh, who is your favorite person from Travis Mannion oh. SLP cohort five? <laughs> and it's from, uh, is uh, it from, uh, Deanna? Yeah. D I man, Deanna, you better be listening to this show. Um, I'm guessing I hope her. that Deanna's not disappointed in this answer, which is, and actually I, you know, if we can do one more question, I'll answer this one real fast. Okay. And I think we should okay. answer the question from Frank. Um, cause that's what I expected you to do last. I totally forgot about Deanna's question. Um, Deanna, okay. it's good. It, you're going to be disappointed, Deanna. It's, it's Matt. So not Matt, my husband, but Matt from cohort five. So anybody who's listening, who doesn't know, I volunteer with the Travis Manion foundation, Spartan leadership program. I'm their positive psychology expert. And, uh, it's a great program. If you are a veteran or a gold star family member, go look into this incredible leadership program. It is using the tools of positive psychology um, to give veterans and families of the fallen a new sense of purpose and mission within their own communities. Um, and the reason that it's Matt, um, Matt is this wonderful older gentleman who is in this year's cohort, um, who when I'm, I'm going to end up crying telling the story, um, in April, when the new cohort kicked off, he and I had a very private conversation where he shared with me that he had a terminal prostate cancer diagnosis. Um, and I'm sure my brother is making a face right now um, because our father was given a terminal prostate cancer diagnosis 15 years ago and lived. Mm -hmm. And so I shared our dad's story with Matt. Um, and when I just saw Matt in November at graduation, uh, he shared with me that his last two scans have shown that he is in remission. Um, he has started sharing his very private story publicly to inspire other veterans who are going through their own cancer battles to um, live every day. And Deanna, who asked this question, um, lost her husband, uh, who was a veteran, to cancer. Um, and so, you know, veteran cancer, I think a lot of our vets feel that they need to internalize their struggles. And really, when you reach out and open up to other people with vulnerability, you get the opportunity for incredible support and resilience. And Matt is a testament to that. Um, so, you know, our, our dad, his survival story for, resonated really deeply with Matt and Matt's willingness to trust me uh, and to share his story with me and then trust his cohort. Um, so sorry, Deanna, it's Matt, but I know you'll understand. <laughs> heck, heck, cancer, man. I, I yeah. want to swear, Heckin but I'm going to keep it. We're keeping it PC. Heck, cancer. cancer. Um, um, right. How can you fight? All right. So this one, this one's from Frank, uh, a guy I know pretty well. Um, how can you fight the negativity and depression that is everywhere in the current world atmosphere? And they're, they, man, they love to publicize that an awful lot, don't they? Yes, they really do. Um, so human beings day. have something called negativity bias, where we focus on um, potential threats, potential um 
disruptors to our equilibrium. And it was, it was a feature, not a bug for most of our evolutionary ancestors. And in modern times, it's become a bug that we have to manage because a lot of us are losing the sense of what it's like to live with a calm, regulated nervous system because we're overstimulated all the time and we feel like there's threat busting through the door all the time. Um, so Frank sent me this question. Uh, Frank is a crossover from Dan's audience to mine. And I feel very fortunate uh, to know Frank. So hi, Frank. Um, and thank you for the question. And so I wanted to wrap on this one because I think it's something that a lot of people are struggling with right now. Uh, and so I've got three, three axioms. Um, the first one is start with knowing who you can trust. Um, and so that means like curating your, your feeds to be uh, people that you follow that you know are legit, that they actually know what they're talking about, um, and that you can trust the information that they're giving you. Um, invest time and energy into friendships that are actually beneficial to you. So cutting out toxic people, uh, working on your communication, giving them resources to work on their communication, um, and then to actually seek out reliable evidence-based information so that you're not just taking any influencer's word for it. So all that kind of falls under knowing, knowing who to trust. Um, the second thing I, uh, related to this was something that I really took away from doing the episode on climate anxiety. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the episode on climate anxiety, um, which really all of the scientific evidence on climate anxiety is very clear that um, having a negative emotional reaction to a really bad thing is completely appropriate and normal. Uh, and so if you are looking at some big threat in your life, some de destabilizing force, and you're feeling anxious or depressed um, or having you know, anger, that's healthy because those negative emotions will inspire us to act. And so, yes, curate your feed, but don't detach, engage in appropriate action in response to whatever the negative thing is. Uh, and that actually leads me to like this last point, which was that, um, you know, Dan, thank you for all of the nice things that you said a moment ago about me, but I've spent much of my life investing a lot of my time and energy and building up more and more resilience and more resources to be able to help other people. Uh, and I actually think that that is really true of you as well. Uh, because I actually do believe that the world's problems right now are still solvable. And what I believe very strongly is that each of us at a certain point has to decide if we're going to be part of the solution. And being part of the solution looks different for everyone, depending on your gifts, your superpowers, your interests, what you're capable of. And there have been times in my life where I'm like, I'm just a coach. I'm just a fitness person and a wellness person. Like, what the heck does that ever help anybody? Um, but some of my clients have gone on to do incredible things out of the stability that the little practices I have taught them are. So, you know, I've got clients who are executives. I've got a client who's gone on to become an ambassador, um, you know, like people who really are acting on the world stage um, out of the stability that we built together. And, you know, I think it's really easy for people to be like, Psh, Dan's just a Twitch streamer, um, but you already gave away the ghost where I was going to go with this is like, through my, through Dan's work, he has made the world better. Like to pay back in kind, the, the tens of thousands of dollars that you have raised to research rare children's cancers. Um, but I think the other thing that you've done that has been really impressive is 
your channel is a safe space for people who are often ostracized in the gaming world. So you created a safe space, not just for women, not just for queer people, but for trans gamers to come and know that if anybody said any boo to them, that you would roast those people and ban them because they're trying to other people that you think should be included in the gaming world. So while that might seem like, oh, like, oh, he's a Twitch streamer, he's a YouTuber, what is he actually doing to make the world better? Like you are. And I think to me, that is an example of a way that somebody can be using their gifts to improve the world for everyone. And so again, like building up the resilience, doing the work in yourself. So then you have the fortitude to turn around and be like, okay, who am I going to help today? Um, that to me is how you actually deal with the negativity, the depression, the anxiety of the current atmosphere of the world is you make it better for other people. And in turn, that makes it better for you. Yep. Just like when you go camping, you leave the site better than where you found it. Yeah. Campsite rule is a great place to end this. <laughs> Hell yeah. Heck yes. Um, camping analogy. Let's go. <laughs> I love metaphor. Uh, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for coming to do the birthday takeover show with me, Dan. Uh, thanks I think for having this me. Out really great. <laughs> I have to go, I have to go pack for a plane. I'm getting on in like 12 hours. Yeah. Dan's blowing off my birthday party to go have fun. I guess. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to go shoot guns with two former WWE superstars and Bam Margera. See, this is what I mean. He's way, way I'm gonna get, I'm, Dude, I'm going to slap hands with the undertaker and Goldberg. I'm losing my mind. I'm losing my mind. It's like, I'm like, I'm what? <laughs> yeah. Steve-O's coming too from Jackass. Steve-O's coming. Well, now I feel like I should brag. Should I give one final brag? Do it. Before I'm gonna... Do it. Yeah, brag. Yeah, let's Dan's have the... been telling me to share Do this it. brag on the show, so I'm yeah, going to share this brag. brag, brag. Do um, it. Martin Seligman, Grand Poobah of Positive Psychology, is uh, going to be teaching an undergraduate course in the spring, and he is hand-selected, uh, I think, 26 uh, teaching assistants. And I have been asked to be one of those teaching assistants. So I'll be a teaching assistant at the University of Pennsylvania this spring. And then in the fall, I'm going to be teaching my first college course at um, Nova Southeastern University on uh, neuroscience and positive psychology. So you can start calling me Professor Marshall, big brother. Yep. Yeah, I read the email. He was like, Dar, this is because you are so unbelievably cool. This is why we're going to have you as a as an assistant. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely that like, what the email said. Yeah, anyway, like, you are the coolest applied positive <laughs> psychology master's degree recipient I have ever had the pleasure of working with. Please come work with me. I will not be made whole if you don't come. It was crazy. It was like the gushing. It was it was wild. You're it was all factual. It was just it you're was just ridiculous. Wild. Eric, mute that man's mic before he keeps talking. Um, well, thank you, listener, for riding this hour out with us. Uh, and I hope that you enjoyed the the hamming it up of my brother, Dan One Peg Marshall. You can find him on Twitch TV and YouTube. If you play Tarkov, you probably already know who he is. But anyway, of course, I'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, you can find me out on the interwebs. My email is info at darlene.coach. On Instagram, I'm darlene.coach. My website is, wait for it, darlene.coach. If you're a fan of the show, I hope you already subscribed. Thank you to everybody who left us a five-star review this year. we got a few more episodes to go before January, but if you've got some requests for episodes, be sure to drop me an email and let me know. Thank you so much and be well. Thank you.